It was a final examination for an introductory biology course at a local university. And like many freshman courses, it was designed to weed out new students. In fact, there was over 500 students in this particular class. So it's final examination day. The examination was going to be two hours long, and exam booklets were provided. And so this professor was very strict, and he said to the class, any exam that's not at my desk and at the two-hour mark, I will not accept you will fail this class. Well, about a half an hour into the exam, a student came rushing in and asked the professor for an exam booklet. Well, you're not going to have time to finish this, the professor says. He handed the student a booklet. Yes, I will, said the student. And he took a seat and began writing. So after the two-hour mark, the professor called for all the exams, and the students filed up, and they handed them in, all except for the late students who kept writing. And so an hour later, the student finally came up to the professor, who was sitting at his desk preparing for the next class, and he attempted to put his exam on the stack of completed booklets already there. Oh, no, you don't. I'm not going to accept that. It's late. Well, the student looked incredulous and angry. Do you know who I am? No, as a matter of fact, I don't, replied the professor. Do you know who I am? The student replied. No, and I don't care, said the professor. Good, said the student, and he proceeded to lift up the stack of exams, put his in the middle, and walk out of the class. (laughs) Sounds like something Steve would do, huh? So identity is important. We interact with people differently based on their identity. So, for example, you don't talk to your boss in the same way you would talk to your child. We show veterans a level of respect that we don't show other people. And the student in my story, he kind of took the reverse route. He hid his identity as a way to outwit his professor. And yeah, it's a story, it's worth a good laugh, but it does emphasize the point that your identity matters. Now, since we're talking about identity, you probably want to know a little bit more about the identity of the guy up here talking to you today. So Steve introduced me a little bit. just want to give you a quick uh, introduction to who I am and who we are. So my name, uh, as Steve mentioned, is John Clements. My wife is Jessica. She's over there. Uh, I did go back and check. We've been coming here about five months. That's the official date, yeah. I think we've talked longer than that, though. Um, So that's my wife, Jessica. We have two kids, Brody and Ellie. My son Brody is going to go into the fifth grade this fall. Uh, My daughter Ellie is going into the second grade, so they're upstairs right now with Kayla. Um, You'll notice that uh, there's a couple schools up there. So I went to Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. You have to look out on the map. It's a small place. But uh, I got my degree in Christian ministry there. And then I went to Denver Seminary, and I have a master's degree in biblical studies. So that means I should apparently know what I'm talking about. Let's hope. Um, As far as my work goes, I just finished working about 13 years at Boeing, and I just took a new job at a small company in Bellevue a couple couple weeks ago, and I think I've already met at least three people today who just got new jobs, so there must be something in the water. I'm not really sure. Uh, So I'm excited about that. You'll notice up there there's a picture of a guitar, so I have been playing guitar for most of my life since I was probably in my uh, teenage years. Um, A couple years ago, I started trying to make guitars. That's one that I made up there. And yeah, pretty cool. I talked to Esther. I think she might even let me be in the praise band. I don't know. Kind of hoping. Yes? All right. Cool. (laughs) And if you were at the Seder dinner, you may uh, have recognized me. I was uh, leading worship for that event. 
And then finally, you can see a picture of me up there. Um, I used to be a competitive athlete. I used to be a competitive runner. Now I'm old and slow, but I still enjoy getting out there when I can. Um, so that's a little bit about me. I would just encourage you to come up and talk to me, talk to my wife. I've gotten to know some of you. I would love to get to know more of you. Um, so if you just do me that favor of coming up and talking to me whenever you see me, that would be awesome. All right, so that's a little bit about me. Thankfully, we are not here today to talk about me. That would be kind of a boring sermon, I think. We're here to talk about something a lot more important and engaging than that. If you've been here for the past couple of months, you know we're working through uh, the Gospel of Mark, and we've gotten about halfway through. So our passage today is going to be in Mark 8, and we'll start in verse 22. So if you've got your Bible or your phone app or whatever you use, you can turn there. Uh, it will also be on the screen. And as it happens, we've reached the literary turning point in Mark's Gospel. And this is the point where, where the storyline really starts to shift. And what we're going to see is everything in this story hinges on Jesus' identity. All right, well, let's start by reading the first part of our text today. So we're in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, and Mark writes, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, he led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, Well, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And then Jesus sent him to his home and said, Don't even enter the village. All right, so let's orient ourselves to where we are in the story right now. Uh, after the feeding of the 5,000, uh, which Phil covered, I think, two weeks ago. After that, Jesus goes to a place called Dalmanutha. And this is a town or an area that's somewhere along the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And last week, Steve talked about that, uh, what happened there. And so basically, Jesus gets into it with some Pharisees, and then he hops on a boat, and he starts crossing the Sea of Galilee. And so our text today tells us that when Jesus was on the boat, he went to a place called Beth- Bethsaida, which is at the north end of the lake. And then later on, when we look at the second half of our verse, you'll see that he goes basically northeast towards a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's not on this map. It's just right above the cutoff line on this map. And as is becoming quite usual for Jesus by this point, some people bring him a man who needs healing. And this makes sense because this is pretty much what Jesus has been doing the entire gospel at this point. He's heals the sick. He performs miracles. He's basically seen as this wonder-working type of person. And so his ability to heal the sick really forms the people's view of his identity. So they see Jesus as this miracle worker, this healer. So of course, when he comes to town, what do they do? But they bring him someone who needs a miracle. And in this case, it's this blind man. And the people bring the blind man to him and they beg Jesus to heal this man, to give him his sight. Now, Jesus responds to this request by taking the man by the hand and he leads him outside of the city. Let's pause just a second right there. Why would Jesus take this man outside of the city? What was wrong with where they were at? Surely Jesus could have healed him right there just as well as he could have healed him outside of the city. Why did he take that extra step? What's going on? Well, 
I think there's a reason why Jesus did this, why he took this blind man out of this particular town. Well, let's look at Jesus' words in Matthew 11 to get a bit of a clue. So here Jesus begins to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! Hmm. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Okay, so this tells us that Jesus was no stranger to Bethsaida. It's not like this was the first time he ever showed up in that town. No, uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus had already done mighty works in that town, and yet they did not repent of their sins. Okay, so what mighty works is Matthew talking about? What did Jesus do there that was so special? Well, the Gospel of Luke tells us the answer to that question. Luke tells us that Bethsaida is where Jesus fed the 5,000. If you want to look that up later, that's in Luke 9, 10, and 11. So what we see is that Jesus performs one of his biggest miracles in Bethsaida, and yet the people there were obstinate. They would not believe that God was at work in Jesus' ministry. And so this time around, Jesus basically isn't having any of it. By healing the man outside of the town, not in Bethsaida, but out in the country, he's basically saying, enough is enough. And this is backed up further by verse 26, where Jesus tells the man, after he's healed, don't even enter the village. Don't even go back there and tell him what happened. And so Matthew Henry, he put it in his commentary on this passage. He said that they will not see, and so therefore they shall not see. You see what Jesus is doing there? He's basically saying, he's abandoning Bethsaida to judgment. It's really not a good place that you want to be. All right, so let's turn our attention back to this healing account. So this is interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, Mark is the only gospel which records this particular healing. It's unique to Mark. And it's, it's kind of odd in, in that this is the only healing that Jesus performs in, in stages. Well, let's look at verse 23. Mark says that, uh, that Jesus spit on his eyes, he laid his hands on him, and then he asked him, do you, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, well, I, I see men, but they look like trees walking. So Jesus heals the man, sort of. So instead of being blind, now he can see, which is great, except he's nearsighted. Now, I'm nearsighted, and I have to say, like, when I get up in the morning, if I don't have my contacts in or my glasses on, like, it's hit or miss, right? Like, even going from the bed to the bathroom, I don't know what kind of obstacles are in my way. It's dark. I'm kind of, like, doing this number. I mean, I suppose it's better than being blind, but it's not exactly ideal, right? It's not exactly what we think of when we think about God healing someone. So the question is, why did Jesus only kind of heal this man at first? What is going on there? We know that he can heal people instantly. He's done it many times before. And we know that in the very next verse, Jesus puts his hands on the man and he does heal him fully. And in fact, Mark is, is rather forceful with his description. In verse 25, Mark says that Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Now, do you notice the repetition there? Mark says the same thing three times. He opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Right? That's three different ways of saying, look, the dude could see. 
But the repetition is really Mark's way of being emphatic. So he didn't have the opportunities that we have to be able to use an italicized font or to, or to make it bold or to underline it or use an exclamation point. So what they would do in that time is they would repeat themselves. And so that's what Mark does here. The guy could see, and he could see crystal clearly. He's not nearsighted. He's not farsighted. He, it's, he's crystal clearly, uh, crystal clear vision now. I kind of think maybe he got the nickname Old Eagle Eyes after that, you know? We don't know. But what we do know is that Mark is very emphatic. Jesus did heal this man fully. He could see. But we still haven't answered our question. Why did Jesus bother with this, this halfway healing the first time around? Well, in order to see why he did this, and, and there is a reason why he did it, we have to start uh, looking at the next paragraph. So we're going to pick it back up again. Let's read the next couple of verses. So Mark starts up again in, in verse 27. He says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And then he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Okay, at this point, Jesus and his disciples, they leave Bethsaida. He's healed the blind man. They start walking towards Caesarea Philippi. Uh, so this was a journey of about 25 miles. It would have taken probably a couple of days to walk up there. So plenty of time to talk, plenty of time to ask questions. Uh, and on the way, Jesus asked his disciples these two questions. And now as a modern reader, kind of we know all the whole story, you know, it's kind of easy to skim over stuff like this. We, we don't, they don't seem to be terribly remarkable questions, perhaps, on first reading. When Jesus says, you know, who do people say that I am? Well, okay, maybe Jesus, maybe he's trying to gauge the mood out there, right? Maybe he just kind of wants to know uh, generally what's going on with, with the crowd and what they're thinking. And then when he says, okay, well, who do you say that I am? All right, maybe he wants to know where his disciples stand, right? That, that seems fair. Um, you know, it's a good practice to take time on occasion to stand back and, and, and kind of ask the big questions. Um, if you're working on like a big project at work, it's really super easy to get really bogged down in the details and just go, 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 go and never lift your head up. But if you have a good project manager, they'll, they'll kind of raise their head up uh, you know, above the cubicle wall every now and again and say, hey, are we still on course? Are we still doing what we're supposed to be doing? Is this still uh, meeting what we're supposed to be doing? So the question is, is that what Jesus is doing here? Is he just stepping back and, and you know, checking the pulse of his mission? Well, I don't think so, um, because he knew what his mission was. He got his mission from his father. He didn't really need to seek any outside opinion about it. He knew what it was. Okay, well, maybe he's feeling insecure. I mean, we all want to have a good reputation. I, I do. Maybe he just wants to know if the people still like him. It's kind of like when you ask a friend, you know, hey, hey, what, is, what, is, what does so-and-so think about me? Do they, do they like me? You know? And when we were kids, I think, you know, you'd have the little messages with the little box, you know, yes or no, so-and-so. At least they did that when I was a kid anyway. It's probably a text now. So again, is this what Jesus is doing? Is, is he just, you know, looking for like, a, like an ego stroke um, or something to make it feel good? And again, the answer is No. Think about it. This is the guy about whom God spoke from heaven and said, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. 
He didn't need his ego stroked. He knew who he was, and he knew his father loved him, and he knew his mission. No, this interaction with his disciples is far more than just digging for information that he already knew anyway. He was doing it for another reason. And in fact, this is where the entire gospel starts to change, and the whole story starts to shift with these questions. So let's take a closer look. So Jesus asked his disciples, okay, who do people think that I am? And they say, well, okay, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Okay, well, why would they say that? Well, some people were confused and apparently thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. In fact, Herod, the guy who killed John the Baptist, thought that Jesus was, uh, was John come back to life. Others thought that he was the prophet Elijah come back again. And if you remember, and I think we, we you know, go over this during the Seder dinner, Elijah didn't die. He got taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And so later on, the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament, he wrote, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So it probably seemed reasonable to some people that Jesus was filling this role of Elijah. Now, of course, we know, uh, because the Gospels tell us, that really Elijah was John the Baptist. That was the man who was filling that role. But some people thought that about Jesus. And then still others thought that he was another prophet. And they, they saw him do miracles. They saw him heal people. He challenges the religious authorities. And they thought, hey, this guy, he does stuff that a prophet does. He, he must be a prophet, right? That makes sense. And of course, it is true. Jesus was a prophet. But the problem is, he wasn't just a prophet. All right, let's think back to the blind man in Bethsaida now. When Jesus healed him the first time, could he see clearly? No. He saw people walking around, but they were all fuzzy and indistinct. And so this partial healing was an illustration that Jesus used to show the partial understanding of the people. They saw what he did, but they didn't see who he really was. Just like the blind man, their vision was fuzzy. So then Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks, okay, who do you think I am? Oh man, it's getting personal now. It's not, no longer about those people out there. It's no longer about the crowds. Oh man, it's about us now. He wants to know what we think. And at this point, Peter steps up. And really for the first time in the story, Peter really becomes the group spokesman. And that's kind of a mantle he'll carry from this point forward. Um, and I got to say, you know, if you, if you know about Peter... The dude made some boneheaded decisions in his life. He made some mistakes. He just flat out didn't get it, like, a lot of the time. But right here, right now, he, he does get it. He says to that question, you are the Christ. And then in Matthew's account of the story, he adds a little more detail. And there, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. All right, let's go back one last time to this healing in Bethsaida. Jesus heals the man a second time, and now what can he do? He can see clearly. And like we saw, Mark is emphatic about this. He repeats the fact three times. He opened his eyes. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. There is no doubt. And so it is with Peter, and so it is with the disciples. So for the first time in Mark's gospel, Jesus' true identity is seen clearly. Very first time. Peter, speaking for the disciples, he can see. 
He can see that Jesus is not just a rabbi. He can see that Jesus is not just a miracle worker. He is not even just a prophet. He's the Christ. He's Messiah. He is God's son. And so the whole arc of the story changes at this point. So in the first eight chapters of Mark, everything we've gone through up to this point, we are introduced to Jesus and we see him healing the sick, feeding crowds of people, challenging the religious elite. And so you might think of it as as Mark portraying Jesus as as a miracle worker up to this point albeit with a lot of messianic overtones. They are there. But now, with Peter's confession that you are the Christ, Mark is going to turn his attention to Jesus in that role. And Jesus still has to tease out a lot of nuance with respect to his identity and his mission. He has to explain to his disciples exactly what kind of Christ, what kind of Messiah he was going to be. And that's why, in the last verse, he he tells the disciples not to spread this news You see, instead of being a political or or a military victor, instead of running the Romans out of town in a rail, right, that's what people wanted the Messiah to be. No, he's going to end up on a cross. And so as we continue through the second half of Mark, we're going to see this unfold. So guess what? Jesus' question to the disciples is the same question that he's asking you and he's asking me. Who do you say that I am? So now we're back to the importance of identity. And how you answer that question, who you think Jesus is, that's going to determine how you respond to him and it's going to determine the authority that he has over your life. So let's look at some options. Maybe you think that Jesus was a good teacher and a good role model, but well, let's not get all carried away with that, that son of God business. Now, I will agree with you. Jesus was a good teacher, and he is a good role model, and there is much we can learn from him. But is that all that he was? In other words, if you think that, is it possible that you have fuzzy vision? After all, you'll notice that when Peter said, you were the Christ, Jesus didn't correct him. In fact, in Matthew's account, he does the opposite. There he tells Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So let's let's be clear now. Jesus clearly thought that he was, in fact, God's Son. There is no doubt. And if someone claims to be God's Son and yet is not, that makes that person either a liar or a lunatic. There's no other options. And if someone is a liar or a lunatic, that disqualifies them from being a good teacher and a good role model. So if that's you today, if you, if you think that Jesus was a good person, but, but not necessarily God's son, well, I would encourage you to spend some time wrestling with the facts of who he actually claimed to be, because he really didn't leave that open as an option. Now, it's likely here that, uh, that many of us today have already accepted his claims. We, we do believe, like Peter, that he is the Christ. But the next question is, what kind of Christ do you think that he is? And this is where many of us, especially here in America, kind of have a problem. Whether we want to admit to it or not, I think a lot of us tend to think that Jesus died on the cross so that we could be comfortable. Maybe ever fall guilty of that trap besides me? All right, okay, not just me, great. Or, or to put it another way, how much of your faith is based upon God giving you what you want? And what happens to your faith when God doesn't? give you what you want. 
You see, in Jesus' time, the people in Israel, they wanted an earthly Messiah. They wanted someone to set up an earthly kingdom. They wanted earthly peace, earthly prosperity, but it turns out that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to save us from being eternally separated from God. He came to give us eternal peace, eternal prosperity. And so we have to be clear that Jesus did not come so that you or I could live a comfortable life or that, so that we could always get what we wanted. Now, God in his grace and goodness, he does give us good things and we can be thankful and grateful for those things when they come. But at the center of our faith, we need to know he came to redeem your soul and my soul from eternal condemnation and separation from the Father. That's what it's about. So if you've fallen into that trap, this idea that faith in Christ is all about what you can get, it out, get out of it, then, oh man, today, just, I would just encourage you to repent. You know, seek forgiveness for looking at Christ in that way and really, really embrace Jesus' true identity. It's so much better. Now, perhaps you believe that Jesus was God's Son and the foundation of your faith is the glorious truth that he came to save you from your sins. And if that's you today, man, that is amazing. And like Phil said a couple weeks ago, that is a miracle, and we should just be so happy about that. But if that is you, let me ask you one last question. How much authority do you give Jesus in your life? You see, Jesus' authority is inextricably linked to his identity. If he really is the Messiah, if he really is your Lord and Savior, guess what? He has to have authority over everything. It's kind of what the word Lord means. So the question is, have you given it to him? Or have you maybe said some things like this? God, you can have everything in my life except don't ask me to share my faith because I'm not sure I'm going to do that. Ouch. How about this one? God, you are my Lord and I trust you with everything except, you know, I'm going to hang on to this this one little sin because it's it's not very big and I I, kind of like it. Or God, I will do anything you ask except give generously because I really find my security in my bank account instead of you. Anybody else say these kind of things from time to time? Yeah, not just me again? All right, cool. And if that's you today, again, I, I would just encourage you, you know, confess that. Repent. Turn from, from those thoughts and those ways. And really commit to giving everything over to him. Maybe it's something where you need to, to pray and ask the Spirit for the strength to do that. Maybe you need to find an accountability partner and have that conversation and have them help you. I don't know what it is, but I do know to commit everything to him. Reconcile your faith with his identity. Okay, I'm going to close in prayer, and as, as the, the praise band comes back up, would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word, and I, I thank you for Mark's gospel because he teaches us about the true identity of Jesus, the Messiah and your Son. God, I I pray that we wouldn't leave this place with your word just in our ears, but I pray that it would penetrate our hearts. And I pray that each of us today would take time to consider the identity and authority of your Son. So God, I, I would just pray that your Spirit would convict us where we need to be convicted, spur us on where we need to be spurred on, and, and build in us true faith in your Son, Jesus. And it's in his name that I pray all these things. Amen.